Let me pray to open up our time. Holy Spirit, we pray that your word would pierce through our soul and spirit and discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts so that the eyes of our hearts would be open to knowing and treasuring you above all others and all other things. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. And together we said, Amen. Well, let me start just by reading our text, Mark chapter 7. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 23. We're going to be hitting some hard things today, so let me, before I even move on with, uh, with, uh, with everything that we're going to be doing, let me just read our text and open up with that. Mark 7 says this, Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, and he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord, and we're going to stop right there. So again, like I said one minute ago, we're going to be hitting some hard things today as we discuss a word that pops up from time to time, if you've had any history in the church, and it's a word that, that, we, that we call legalism. Um, And given the text that we're looking at today, we can define legalism as this, as the belief that what we do on the outside fixes what's wrong on the inside. 
It's a simple definition. We're going to keep redefining that word as we go through the text. It actually has its roots, legalism, in Adam and Eve from the book of Genesis. And what happened then was that Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit from a tree that God commanded them not to eat. And the first thing they did upon realizing that their shame was out there in the open was to break out the world's first singer sewing machine and sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. But something interesting happened because what they soon discovered was that covering their nakedness, it couldn't cover the guilt and shame of their sin. It was faulty. It wasn't sufficient. The thought that they had was that God would, you know, roll in from his afternoon walk in the garden, see them fully clothed and say, you know, thank you. I've been wondering when you were going to put something on, right? But that's not what happened. They were hiding from God. They ended up hiding from God in their guilt and their shame, which was not because they hadn't been wearing, you know, fig leaf speedos and bikinis. That wasn't the issue, right? It was because they had rejected and disobeyed God's word. The fig leaves, those were just an attempt to obscure what had originated on the inside. And that's legalism in a nutshell. It's outward band-aiding for inward brokenness. You know, it's kind of like painting a house after you find out the structure has rotted away right? It would be like washing your car when the mechanic has told you the transmission is gone, right? It'd be like applying makeup to your face or your body when in reality you have a, you have a skin disease. R.C. Sproul describes legalism like this. He says, it's a subtle form of idolatry in that it elevates that which is human above that which is divine. It substitutes human traditions, human policies, and human regulations for the very word of God. Because every time we add to the law of God, we inevitably subtract from it. So there's just a a boatload of ways we'll see that that this has played out in the church over the years. And and it plays out most clearly for us when we raise non-essentials to essentials. When we elevate church traditions to replace God's commands and then hold others in contempt when they're not following them. And some of the categories that we see this kind of playing into the church is things like doctrine and things like politics and music and art and parenting and clothing and food and alcohol and entertainment and the list can go on and on. But here's what happens when we do what I just described, when we replace God's commands with man's traditions is we void God's word. We void God's word when we obey man-made traditions over God-given truth. That's the big idea. We're just going to start with that. But walking with Jesus, on the other hand, it's different. It's a daily conformity to what Scripture alone says. Nothing more, nothing less. So this is kind of a picture of what we're seeing here as the Pharisees connect with Jesus, which is what uh, they do, the Pharisees and the scribes. The scribes were, were writers. They were lawyers of the law. It says here that they have traveled to observe and be with Jesus. They would have traveled about 90 miles from Jerusalem to gather around and uh, observe Jesus. And, and what's interesting is we just dive right into the text. Is Man, these, these brothers don't waste a minute 
I mean, they don't waste a minute before they criticize Jesus for allowing his disciples to eat without washing their hands according to Jewish tradition. Okay, now we want to understand what's going on here because this wasn't because the Pharisees were like concerned with good hygiene. Like that wasn't really what was going on. These were ceremonial, symbolic washings that had been prescribed by Jewish leaders years ago, right? But they were now being used by the Pharisees as the occasion to declare the disciples unclean because of their failure to practice them, right? So they just dive right on, not necessarily the disciples, but they kind of dive on Jesus and call him on why he's allowing his disciples to not wash in the tradition that they have. And Mark is quick to point out to us in verse 4 that there were many other traditions they observed that were just like this, right? And we know something about traditions. Like, we have traditions. We can get pretty strict with our traditions. One of the traditions that Melissa and I have had for years is uh, the day after Thanksgiving is, for us is called Tree Day. Now, again, you don't got to be that creative. That's when we get our Christmas tree, right? And here's the thing. I, I really like getting my Christmas tree on Tree Day. That's the designated day for Christmas trees in the Martin family. That's just what it is. So a couple of years ago, things got a little haywire. I'm not going to lie to you. And what happened was my daughter had gotten a job she wasn't, she wasn't able to be there on tree day, on Friday. So my wife comes to me and she says, um, hey, buddy boy, I got some news for you. Uh, are you going to be okay if we move tree day to Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving? And I'm just looking at her like this. I'm like, does this look like the face of somebody who is okay with that plan, Right? Because that's not, Wednesday's not tree day. And you know what she was really saying? Christmas is ruined. <laughs> that's what she was saying. That was code for what she was saying. But you know what? It really was ruined that year. That ruined the entire holiday. I'm totally kidding. It had nothing to do with anything. It was something that I had just elevated to a level of family tradition that I was letting rule and control me and rule and control our family. And we all have things like that. We can relate to things like that. We understand traditions. It's something that comes natural to us. So what we see here is the Pharisees, man, they, man, they just, they get aggressive. They get aggressive right off the bat with their traditions. They get aggressive with Jesus and ask why his disciples don't walk according to their tradition but yet are eating with what they call defiled hands, right? And you, you could kind of compare this. I mean, I'm going to. You could compare this uh, to someone who might come into our church one day, right? They stroll in. It's their first time here. And they might look at me and say, Ronnie, why are you allowing your musicians to play defiled instruments like the guitar instead of proper ones like, say, the organ, right? I mean, to which I would reply because... Organs are for haunted houses, not churches, right? Because that's how we all feel, because that's the truth, right? Now, this is what's interesting right here, right? They barely get the question out of their mouth to Jesus, right? You got to like this, before Jesus lets them know how he really feels, right? By calling them hypocrites in verse 6. And then not only that, but he, but he just adds some fuel to the fire, right? By quoting Isaiah 29, 13, right there in verse uh, 6 and 7, where he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So to say this is a strong reaction by Jesus is putting it really mildly, actually. 
So again, without being incredibly brilliant here, we can sense by the mood of the text that this critique of the Pharisees is massively offensive to Jesus, right? And again, it's not because he can't handle criticism. It's not because his feelings get hurt easily. That's not why he's so uh, offended. It's because these men were blind to what it was that truly defiled a person. They were offended. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. But the greater offense was that Jesus was offended by their understanding of the law. And that calls into question our own offense, doesn't it? Are we offended by what offends Jesus? If he says it, we need to believe it. We need to live it. We need to not tweak with it. But are we offended by what offends Jesus or by things that offend our own rules and our own traditions and the the things that we have raised up and tried to put on equal level and equal footing foundationally with the laws of God. But so by quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah here, Jesus is pointing out that just like, just like the religious hypocrites from Isaiah's day, and there were hypocrites in Isaiah's day just like they were in Jesus' day, just like there are in our day, um, these religious leaders gave lip service to God, but had hearts that didn't live out what their lips spit out, right? In other words, you can say... I love God, but turn around and live in opposition to the things that God loves. And it says in verse 7 that the Pharisees had become vain worshipers because they rejected the commandments of God in favor of keeping the traditions of men. So there's a way then, by virtue of this text, there's a way we see here that one can worship God that means nothing to God when you live in disobedience to the word of God. Thankfully, our church is is never in danger of that, never in danger of any hypocrisies except for that we we are, right? And this is one of the ways we are. Every time we're silent about what's broken in our own lives, but we practically salivate for the opportunity to criticize someone for not living up to our religious standards, you know what's going on there? We've become actors in a religious play that is offensive to God. Because we are rejecting his command. So that keeps it really real for us today, in this day and age. And so Jesus, what he does is he gives them an example from their own playbook here in in verses 10 through 13. I'll read it again. He says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So that comes from the the Ten Commandments, uh, the commandments of the Old Testament. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So Corbin here, this strange word, it's actually a Hebrew word that simply means a gift devoted to God. So in a nutshell, a man back in this, in this time could kind of slide on his responsibility to care for his mom or dad by claiming that his money had been set aside for God. Now, Corbin, this particular law, it had a real convenient loophole in it that stated you could use the money set aside and devoted to God. You could still use it for personal use, but you couldn't use it for anything or anyone else. So what would happen is a man could declare Corbin 
have the appearance of a devoted, sacrificial follower of God, but then have the ability to deny his parents' help in their time of need while still using the money for himself because that's what the law declared was legal. Jesus says in verse 13 that they were in effect making void the word of God because their traditions were held to a higher standard than what God's word commanded. And he says it wasn't just with this particular law, it wasn't just with Corbin, but it was with many such things. So what that does is it calls into question what, what has authority? Who has authority in our lives? Is it tradition or is it scripture? See, if tradition has authority, then it can make scripture bend to its preference. And the problem with that, of course, is that God's word doesn't bend. It's binding. Tradition can bend, like me and Tree Day. Tradition can bend because tradition's not binding. So scripture always has final authority over tradition. Now, on issues where scripture is silent, man, we can have traditions as long as those traditions don't violate scripture or bind our consciences. The problem is that we give our traditions more weight than scripture. This is what the Pharisees were doing. And we're like the Pharisees. So Jesus brings it back to the real underlying problem as we get to verse 14. And what he does is he gathers a group of people to give a follow-up response to what the Pharisees originally accused him of, which was eating with unwashed hands. And Jesus says, look, it's not what goes in that defiles a person. He says, to the contrary, actually. What defiles a person are those things that originate in the heart and come flowing out. That's what defiles a person. And then he explains further to his disciples as he gets off by themselves, uh, who are still suffering, obviously, because they misunderstood him from a little spiritual dullness, a little insensitivity. I mean, these were men that were still in process trying to understand who Jesus was and what his mission was. But he explains further to them in verse 18 through 20. And in the midst of that explanation, he declares, all food's clean by saying it can't be food that makes a person righteous or unrighteous, but only what comes from the heart. So what he's doing here, pretty remarkably for this particular time, is he's declaring that the old dietary laws, and there were many laws of the Old Testament covenant, he's saying, look, those will not have to be applied anymore because faith in me, faith in Christ alone, will be what makes a person righteous or undefiled. Those old dietary laws from the Old Testament, they were, they were okay, they were good, but they were incomplete. And at the end of the day, they just pointed to what Jesus came to fulfill on the cross. So Jesus is just wiping the slate clean right now as he anticipates what's about to happen in the very near future with him on the cross. And we have to understand, this was, this was a shocking statement for these brothers Real shocking statement. It was actually one that Peter himself would struggle with later when Jesus spoke to him in a vision from the book of Acts chapter 10. And he said, Peter, here's the thing. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. I'm sending you to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And you can't sit here and call them unclean because I've declared them clean. So his main point wasn't really actually talking about food, but he's really talking about people and the hearts of people and people of not Jewish uh, descent so that he could point out that he had come to offer salvation and the gospel to all people. So what defiles a person then? 
Well, Jesus provides a list of actual defilements in verse 21. Look what he says. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And this list is important for us because of our own rating system. We kind of have a a rating system for our sin. We have a system that we've devised that probably, if we're honest, reads more like uh, the Pharisees. I mean, am am I right about that? Um, We read things like murder and theft in that list, right? Our eyes dart to things like murder and theft, and we go, dude, I'm good. You know, can we pray and go go get the lunch already? Because that doesn't have a lot of application for me. Like, we're we're okay with evil things that get you a criminal record. Like, I don't know how, but like, we are. We're kind of okay with those things. But when the list also includes things like coveting and envy and slander and pride and foolishness, we, we wink and nod at that. And we say like, you know, hey man, you know, nobody's perfect, right? I mean, am I right? Nobody's, like, nobody's perfect. We can't expect perfection. We declare those sins acceptable because we don't think they carry as heavy a stain as the ones that we've relegated to being big ones, right? That can send you away for the rest of your life. I mean, let me ask you this, when is the last time you admitted to somebody you struggled with pride and they stood back and were like, hypocrite, you know what I mean? Like, when's the the last time that happened? I mean, you'd be like, dude, relax, it's not like I murdered somebody. I mean, like, that's what you'd say. But interestingly enough, Jesus calls these evil things and he doesn't rate them. Like, there's no five-star rating system that comes after this. If you look in your margins, there's no, like, rating system that you can, like, check into and clock into and figure out what's bad to worse on a good day or a bad day on a sliding scale. So that should be kind of disturbing because it means you, oh, nice person, are as much on the hook for sin as somebody on death row. What? Jesus doesn't use a rating system. He says all these evil things. So, when we call evil what God has not called evil, when we hold people to standards that are rooted in tradition rather than Scripture, Jesus is calling us hypocrites. He's saying we are vain worshipers who are voiding God's Word. And so whenever Jesus calls out our sin, Our immediate response, our first call, is to repent and turn from it. So think about that as we kind of wrap this up and and look at some of the implications here for our own lives that that Jesus has been leading his disciples through. Because what I want to look at is what are some of the ways that we void God's word? What are some of the ways that we are voiding God's word? As we look into this passage, as we see some familiarity, if we're honest about our relationship to the way that the Pharisees interpreted what was bad and what was good, what was acceptable, what was unacceptable. So what are some of the ways that we're avoiding God's word? Here's the first one. We avoid God's word when we add our words to God's word. When you pile your own laws on top of God's commands and obey those instead so if you've, ever, um, if you've ever been to the, the Cleveland Museum of Art, you're going to see a lot of 
amazing paintings and portraits. And if you're like me, you look at these things, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I lo- I'm checking my watch for when lunchtime is, but, like, I'm enjoying it in the moment. Um, but um, one of the things that I always understand when I'm there is that this is clearly something that I have no gift or talent in, and I need to stand back, and I need to go, I need, I need to stand back and, and, and observe what's been painted, what's been created, and there needs to be a sense of, of awe and wonder because I, I can't do that, and it's, and it's not my right to tamper with that painting. So imagine being in that art museum and imagine walking by, grabbing a brush, and adding a stroke. I mean, I mean there's going to be people there who are literally going to tackle you and like take you to jail. But let's just say that you did that. What are you doing? But you're, you're changing the canvas. I mean, again, you, you might have even like used the right color palette, right? You might have done a little research on that and said, no, 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 I got, I got the right color on there. It's still keeping within the frame. But what you've really done is debase the artist's work. Legalism is debasing the work of the creator. It's rewording the commands of God. It's declaring grace to be optional when it's God's chosen option for salvation with Jesus. Because walking with Jesus, as we said in the beginning, it's a conformity to Scripture. It's not altering it. It's not tweaking it. But we void God's word when we obey man-made tradition over God-given truth. So that's a very sweet and very tame example for you. But I'm going to give you something that's going to hit a little closer to home. I'm not doing it to offend you, but I'm doing it because I don't want to back off from how critical and how important this is. And so for people like me in my position, we can give nice analogies, we can tell nice stories, and we can walk away feeling like, yeah, I probably need to do some work on this. But let me talk about something that probably is going to hit us, some of us, maybe a lot of us, a little bit deeper. Let's talk about alcohol. Let's do that. Alcohol in the church. The Bible speaks against what? Drunkenness. But many Christians go as far to say, hey, you know what? In order to avoid drunkenness, I'm just never going to drink. Now, that's a choice. But if another person has a conscience that allows them to have a drink without violating God's command to not get drunk, they are not prohibited in Scripture to do it. But many Christians have taken God's command against drunkenness and have added to it by saying, all drinking is sin, even though there's no command in the Bible that says, thou shalt not consume alcohol. Now, a little qualification, okay? If you know a brother or sister who struggles with drunkenness, you would not, you would want to show them grace you would not want to flaunt your freedom to drink around them. But, you guys following me? God is not calling you to the same sensitivity for those who are self-righteously casting judgment over you because they are holding you to their own commandment over God's. Is that, is that, is that kind of clear? I literally went over this for hours making sure that I could say this as clear as I possibly could say it. 
the minute we hold people to a standard of obedience that Scripture does not speak of, our own obedience to God has been corrupted. And our sin of self-righteousness, listen, has become more reprehensible than the sin of the person we're even condemning. And you know why? Because Jesus speaks more harshly of self-righteousness than all other sins in Scripture. Does that mean that we don't call out sin? No. Jesus calls out sin. Remember the story when Jesus was with the woman of the well, right? I mean, she was not coming off of a good run. She'd had five husbands. The husband she was with currently, she wasn't married to. Jesus called out the sin of her life, but he also, he also showed grace to her. He also showed her grace and compassion and mercy, and she listened to him. So all of this is to point out that we need to be transfixed and committed with God's word and doing what God's word says without adding our words on top of it as a way to judge ourselves as being more worthy as well as others. Psalm 119.20 says this, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So when we follow the word of God and we commit ourselves to God's commands and doing what they say, there is a longing that is going to be fulfilled in our hearts and a delight that is going to overflow. So one of the ways we void God's word is when we add our words to God's word. Secondly, when we condemn others with our commands. We just talked a little bit about that. What happens when our defilements are different than God's? Our defilements are different than God's defilements is that we engage in the more contemptible practice of condemning others. We judge others over practices the Bible gives us freedom in. Now, in the church, we've done this just kind of a lot. The church does not have this shiny, sparkling reputation for not doing this. It would be the other way around. The church has done this a lot over people's preferred mode of, say, even like baptism, or when uh, we talk about positions on the end times, or when we talk about what style of music um, that certain churches choose over other styles of music. Um, You know, a big one right now, a really big one right now, I would say, would be something like parenting, right? There's a lot going on with parenting. Now, when I was growing up, um, when I was growing up, one of the big things was private school, right? And the big debate in, the, in, in all the arguments and all the debates and the struggles was this private versus public school thing that was just constant as I was going through school. Now it's really, it's, it's homeschooling. It's homeschooling versus public or private school. Now, these are personal convictions, right? But personal convictions require prayerful consideration. That's a good thing. When we elevate personal conviction to having the same authority as Scripture, though, we do what Jesus is saying the Pharisees are doing. We are voiding Scripture. And the result, how do we know that that's happening? Well, the result is that we put up our noses at those who don't obey what has become our commands, not God's. Galatians 5, 13 through 15 says, 
For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says this though, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Jesus took our judgment on the cross so that we wouldn't have to die under the judgment of God, but we could experience and have and possess freedom instead. But when we replace God's commandments with our own traditions and then we judge others for not keeping them, we're looking to be counted righteous for the very thing that condemned us in the first place. The result? The result of these two things, using our words instead of God's words, condemning others, the result of this is that we nullify grace. We nullify grace. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because, listen, by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's pretty clear. And then he goes on to say in verses 20 through 21, this is Paul writing, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, he says. For if righteousness were through the law, this is the big one right here. If righteousness were through the law, if it was through keeping our own commands, if it was about making our traditions the final arbitrator of authority, then Christ died for no purpose. That's what Paul says. The problem with legalism is that it actually doesn't go deep enough. It's a surface-level solution to a heart-level crisis. It attempts to erase the cross is what it does. What other kind of damage does legalism do? What does it do to the church body? Well, it develops a hardness of heart that leads to despair. Because here's the thing. What legalism does is it traps us in a place that makes us think we're never doing enough. We're never making God happy. We're never pleasing God enough, man. It's like being on a treadmill. You just go and you go and you go and you go and you've clocked in some calories and you've clocked in some miles, but your destination is the same. You're living under the very condemnation that Christ saved you from on the cross by grace. Legalism does damage, does damage to ourselves and does damage to the ones that we inflicted on. Now, let's talk about this for one second. What about grace then? Do we, do we abuse grace? Can grace be taken too far? Is it just like, well, man, just throw the rules away then, Ronnie. Let's just do what we want so that we can see God's grace in full effect. So in other words, like, man, if I just let it go and I just live how I want, I'm going to have the opportunity to see even more of God's grace. That's kind of what you're saying, isn't it? To which I would say you literally have not heard a word I've said right now. Can grace be taken too far? Only when we stop obeying God's commands out of fear of being legalistic. Which then means that grace and faith have not been taken too far. They've been removed altogether. John Piper says, 
the essence of legalism is when faith is not the engine of obedience. Does that make sense? Paul tells us in Romans 6, 1 through 4, he says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says. How can we who died to sin, how can we still live in it? That's not, by the way, that's not, that's not advocating perfection. It's talking about a lifestyle and a pattern of sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized unto his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might, listen, walk in newness of life. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites for voiding God's word by obeying man's traditions. But he never said we shouldn't work hard to walk in newness of life by obeying God's commands. Paul again says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, listen to what he says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, he says, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So we either void God's word through legalism, or we put ultimate value on it by applying it to our lives with the same grace that it was applied to us from Christ. So for Substance Church, for us, for Substance Church to continue growing in God's grace and not legalism, we need to constantly be evolving as a church of former legalists. So this might be some things that some of you have never heard spoken of in this particular matter. Let go, before you leave the church, before you get angry at me about the alcohol thing, I encourage you to pray. I encourage you to have some good dialogue in your community groups about these things. I encourage you to repent if you need to repent of some of these legalisms that may have been revealed and fleshed out this morning in your heart. There's actually a lot of hope in this passage, okay? Um, where, Ronnie? Because this one's been a little heavy. Well, the Pharisees were blind to those things that defiled a person. But look, to those who conform themselves to what God really says, well, we become true worshipers. And what this passage tells us is that true worshipers don't become righteous by keeping rules, but from giving their hearts to the one person who kept all the rules, Jesus. What the gospel does, what the good news of Jesus does, is it moves us from play-acting to living real lives of faith, where we experience the freedom that comes from being forgiven by grace and then giving that grace out to others. And everything else, according to Jesus, it's just acting. And acting is offensive to God. The work of the cross, well, that's deliverance from the defilement of our hearts. Because you know what Jesus did? He took on all our defilements so that they would stop defiling us to death. That is why Jesus is our greatest treasure. That's why Jesus is to be loved. That's why his words are to be obeyed with joy. That's why our greatest call as followers of Christ is to walk in newness of life. 
with Jesus by faith through grace alone. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we open your word and we read that you have some very, very harsh words to say about people who claim to be followers of Christ and yet live a life that would take their traditions and their own commands and their own ideas about what your word really says and put those in a place that sits above the authority of your scripture. Lord, we know we do this. We know we're a church that does this because we're sinners and because we have a default mechanism in our hearts that snaps back to legalism. We know we do this. And so, Lord, we come before you now. We hear the words of this passage. We don't want to be like these Pharisees. Lord, we, we want you to forgive us. We want you to change us. We want to know the freedom that comes from obeying God's word, the joy that comes from keeping the commands of God. Because it's a light burden. It's a light burden for us. So Lord, teach us, reveal. Lord, dig up those things in our hearts that we realize now after looking at a passage like this that have been just grotesque legalisms in our life. We don't want to excuse sin, Lord. You've not called us to excuse sin. But you have excused us from our sin by the grace of Christ. So Lord, let us extend that grace to others, to our brothers and sisters, so that we can live lives of freedom and confidence and joy knowing that you have paid it all, knowing that you are our greatest treasure knowing that when we do these things, we will see you. So Lord, give us a vision for that this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.